Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, editor-at-large for LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, LARB's managing editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. So this week on the show, we have Amanda Yates-Garcia. Her new book is Initiated, The Memoir of a Witch. I know her from around Los Angeles because she has a practice where you can hire her to consult, to do ceremonies, to do rituals. She's like very political. She's amazing. And I thought this was a great interview. Yeah, I had a lot of questions about the practice of witchcraft. So I was interested to see her and meet her and and also read her book. But also I watched, and we talk about this a little bit in the show, but I, I watched her interaction on Fox News with Tucker Carlson and I was so, so impressed by her her message, one, and then to her composure. And so she was doubly a compelling figure to me, partly because of what she could share about witchcraft as a practice, but also how she engages that practice in the political arena. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. All um, right. Let's listen to the show. Let's do it. Amanda Yates Garcia in the studio with us today. Amanda is a writer, artist, professional witch, and the Oracle of Los Angeles. Her work has been featured in The Millions, The LA Times, Time Out, LA Weekly, Goop, Glamour, The London Times, CNN, and Salon, as well as a viral appearance on Tucker Carlson Tonight. She has led classes and workshops on magic and witchcraft at UCLA, UC Irvine, MoCA, Hammer Museum, LACMA, and so on. She's also the co-host of a popular podcast called Strange Magic. She has a book out now. It's her first book and it's called Initiated, Memoir of a Witch. Thank you so much for joining us, Amanda. It's so great to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. So Amanda, maybe we could just start by you telling us, I know that witchcraft runs in your family, but when did you acknowledge to yourself that you were a witch? Well, you know, yeah, so witchcraft runs in my family, and when I was young, we would do the rituals of witchcraft. My mom had a coven, and so we would celebrate the eight pagan holidays, the Wheel of the Year holidays. Which are, can you tell us? Yeah, so like Lamas, for instance, or Samhain, which is also known as Halloween, which is about contacting the ancestors and the time when the veil between the worlds is at its most thin. Or coming up soon is winter solstice. So that's kind of about celebrating the long dark night of the soul and the return of the light and Beltane, which is a fire holiday in the late spring. But all witch holidays are in relation to the turning of the seasons, the connection with the earth, the connection with the earth and the cosmos or the solar system. So, yeah, that was just kind of a part of a fixture of my life when I was a child. But I didn't I didn't really take it that seriously. You know, it was just something that my mom did and was kind of part of the wallpaper of my life as a child. And... I appreciated it and was interested in it. And I think that most people, when they find out that I was raised by a witch, really want to imagine me like studying and pouring over the books with her. But I grew up in the suburbs. And like most people, your relationship to your parents' traditional religion, I think you wrestle with it a bit, especially Mm -hmm. as you get older, you know, into your teens and start to resist, start to question, especially because that's often really conflated with your relationship with your parents. Right. Mm -hmm. That you may or may not 
I had a great relationship with my mother, but also a very complicated and challenging one. And so then when I got into my late teens and early 20s, I just kind of pushed that aside and said, Mm -hmm. you know, that's not for me. That's my mom's thing. But of course, the sensibilities of witchcraft are something that I feel like appeal to a lot of women and feminine identifying Mm -hmm. people. Yeah, maybe we could talk about what some of those are, just for people who aren't. There are many cliches of witchcraft, many. but you know, like, <laughs> yeah. there's either like the woman on her broom mm-hmm. or, you know, like the sexy young girls in the craft, like casting spells or, you know, snakes and other animals, crows. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But I'm curious what the actual day-to-day practice of it entails. Witchcraft is an emergent spirituality. And it often has a way of linking itself to historical practices that may or may not be actually historically accurate. But I think for most contemporary witches, that's not important. We see the history as a mythology. And so, yeah, there is a mythological or mythopoetic connection to like animal familiars, like crows, which are the familiars of the Morrigan, who are Celtic goddesses of the battlefield and of death, and Hecate, who is the goddess of the crossroads and the goddess of witches, traveler between the worlds, many other goddesses and deities as well. And because it's emergent, it's also, as all magic is, very much based on the space and time in which it's happening. So we're not existing in like 15th century England or France or whatever. We're here now in Los Angeles. So of course, our work is informed by, you know, cinema, media, Instagram. The witches of Instagram is like a really big hashtag. And a lot of people, critics will use that as a way of undermining its intellectual or spiritual viability. But I think it's really evidence that witchcraft speaks to what is happening right now and is relevant to what is happening right now. We might say that that's really what it's about. For me, it's really about finding rituals and techniques to help us cope with this very vulnerable, very unstable predicament that we find ourselves in contemporary culture, which is completely different from, you know, all the previous hundred thousand years of humanity where we're really facing like environmental collapse on a grand scale and the collapse of the industrial growth society. So how do we cope with that? Well, most of the people that I know, because I'm a part of the essentially like the creative class of Los Angeles, like most of the people that I know don't subscribe to their traditional religion of like Christianity or Catholicism, what they're brought up in. And, you know, a lot of people might turn to Buddhism or whatever, and that's great. And if that helps them, then that's wonderful. But for me, what happened was that I ended up turning back to my traditions. And I think that they're particularly effective for coping with contemporary culture because they're drawing on a lot of techniques that come from the arts, for instance, or that come from music or that come from cinema, but that also have ancient and shamanic roots or that are some of these techniques are practiced in many cultures all over the world because they're really effective. I have to say also, though, that in general, ritual is very effective. So whatever kind of ritual you're practicing, it's going to help you and support you. But specifically, I find 
the techniques of witchcraft really empowering and exciting because they just appeal to me on a mythopoetic level. Like I like thinking about the goddesses and familiars and also the connection to the spirits of the earth and really honoring what is sacred in the earth or the enchantment, the numinous quality of the earth itself. So that's what I'm doing. Can you give us some examples of what these techniques are? Yeah, so what's coming up right now is a winter solstice. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that we like to do at winter solstice is to go around in a circle with the people that you invite over and you start the ritual and then you sit in the dark. Because, of course, it's the darkest, longest night of the year for people in the northern hemisphere. You gaze into a bowl of water. Usually it's a black bowl and you gaze beyond the base of the bowl. Mm -hmm. So it's a way of kind of getting yourself into a light trance state. And then you let whatever comes up, come up. Essentially you're communicating with your intuition and you just start to tune in. So that Mm -hmm. already is starting to change the way that time works, change the way that our ordinary experience works. Most of the time we're like scrolling on Instagram or we're like answering emails or making dinner or hustling. And so automatically, you know, when you have, when you're sitting in the dark with other people and listening to the sound of bells or whatever and gazing into this dark pool, things start changing. But then what you do is you go around the group and you have like an indigo candle or a black candle, which is symbolizing the depths of space of the infinite. And everybody goes around and says something that they've lost. They've lost this year. So it might be a person. It might be a relationship. It might be experiencing loss of like the kelp forests, for instance, on the coast of California, which are now almost 90% gone. And the other people in the group hear you. And then you light this candle. And then you'll also light a candle going around speaking to the things that are being born in your life. Or even you can say the name of a child that was born in your community or something that is emerging. Because solstice is the return of the light. And the idea is that there's this kind of positive disintegration that's happening. As Joanna Macy might say that, you know, when the sun is out, you're centric. You're noticing what's around you. You're really kind of caught up in your immediate processes. But when it's night, you see out into the universe. And so you see the beyond. You see into the depths of the universe, into the infinite. And so this holiday is really about allowing the ego structures that we have to collapse so that something new can emerge, so that we can listen to something larger, to see what new forms want to come through. And There's something very validating and beautiful, I think, in honoring loss spiritually and even just, you know, with your friends talking about something that you've lost or having people witness that and hear that. So then also you might throw into the fire old herbs that you have around your house. Like often you make a wreath for solstice or have like a bundle of herbs that you create on solstice of evergreen plants like juniper or rosemary or pine needles and then hang them over your bed for the year and then you toss them in the fire at this time of year. That sounds really beautiful. It is beautiful. There's a chant that goes with Yeah. It. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm not going to ask you to repeat that right now. <laughs> Listening to that sounds like a really just a nice hearty thing to do. Mm. And it's hard for me to imagine anyone being skeptical of that. I feel like where the skepticism comes in is the idea of magic, that by creating ritual, you can make something happen. You know, your book is part memoir and then part kind of history. And you say 
that there's other reasons to practice magic than getting what you want. Mm. And then you kind of list a lot of people that don't necessarily have much power that practice magic. And it kind of makes me wonder about the relationship to witchcraft and spells and history. Is it a way of people trying to assume some sense of power that don't have it? I mean, I'm sure that the reason that people were afraid of women who they identified as witches is much more detailed and dense than the idea that these women had power. But could you talk about like the place of power in witchcraft? Yeah, that is a fascinating, interesting, very complicated question because, well, first of all, yes, that's exactly where people start to become skeptical about witchcraft is about this idea that, oh, like here are these women who think they have magical powers and they can sprinkle salt on a poppet and you know, banish someone from their life. <laughs> you even know what a puppet is. <laughs> it's like a little doll, okay, <laughs> like okay. a little wax doll, a little effigy that you might make. Okay, so here's the weird thing. Often when you practice magic, which is, you know, as Starhawk, one of the grandmothers of West Coast neo-paganism, says magic is about transforming reality according to your will. And so sometimes you do do those rituals and things just change. They just really do change. Sometimes it just really does happen. And sometimes it doesn't. And so you might say, oh, well, is this coincidence or not? For me, that's not really that interesting of a question because I just like doing it. I like practicing it and I find that it empowers me. There is like a scientific basis for the idea that ritual, it does make you feel better whether or not it actually affects external reality is another question. But One of the reasons why magic has historically been banned or the indigenous or traditional practices that people have had, like the people of the land, witchcraft is generally like a folk tradition, right? It's something that people are doing in their houses is because it makes you feel empowered. It makes you feel like you have control over your own destiny, even if you're just doing something really small. And so it makes sense that you know, the powers that be would want to prevent that from happening. They don't want, for instance, the Afro-Caribbean, Yoruban practicing like voodoo traditions to go on because they don't want the people there to feel like they can change their destiny. I don't want to compare like my experiences as like a white contemporary witch to like people who are experiencing deep oppression. But part of what we're doing is about reclaiming power for ourselves in our own lives. But power doesn't just happen with us as individuals. Like, we can look to ecosystems to understand how power operates. Like, in its healthiest sense, power is something that is co-created within a system. It's not something that only an individual has or does. But in our culture, we see power as something, it's like, well, can you wave your magic wand and get a million dollars or not? (laughs) And if you can't, then you're not powerful. But I think that witches are really trying or really working towards different understandings of what power is and what it can do. And so, yeah, you might want to have financial stability. And so you might do a ritual for that or a spell for that. But you are also going to need to do work, like activist work, in order to make it so that everyone in our culture has access to financial stability. Otherwise, that's not really witchcraft as I understand it, because it's about creating the world that you want to find. And that's like a really deep question, because there's a lot of threads that we could follow there. One of the things that you have been doing as part of your practice as a witch is political involvement Mm -hmm. and political engagement. 
And that's a much simpler way of sort of engaging with power, I think. What brought you to the personal rituals that you enact with your family or your friends to the more public-facing political speech that you have practiced in the past? Yeah, well, of course, the first thing that comes into my mind is the feminist slogan, the personal is political. Mm -hmm. And thinking about what it means to protest or to raise one's voice or to do various forms of activist work, for myself, in my early life, as I talk about a lot in my memoir, I was really a mess. Like, my life was really volatile. It was really difficult. There's a lot of legacies of trauma in my family, you know, a lot of challenges in relation to being able to recognize one's worth or one's value. And so when I was younger, I just found it really hard even to be a part of activist circles. Like, I remember being in San Francisco when I was, like, 19 and, like, being invited to participate in this young socialist kind of movement. But then when I got there, it was like a bunch of men explaining what socialism was and like rallying and holding their fists up while the women did all the administrative labor and put out the cookies and like cleaned up. And they just wanted me to do that. And they wanted me to sit at their feet and listen to them pontificate about the new world that was coming and then didn't want to really do anything to destabilize those structures. And so I was kind of turned off of that at that time. And I know there was like probably a lot of other stuff that was going on that wasn't like that, but that was what I found. And it was so disheartening to me that it just seemed to replicate the same system that I was struggling personally to find my way out of and that I couldn't find my way out of because everywhere I turned, I just seemed to see it reinscribed. And so that's why I feel like those personal rituals of empowerment are really important and are part of the political work as well, because at that time, like, I didn't stand up and say, what are you doing? This is just reinscribing the same traditions and norms as the capitalist patriarchy. I didn't know I could do that. I didn't know how to do that. And so it's really been a long process for me of getting to the place through doing, like, magic and ritual and lots of other things, you know, finding my ways in other sort of communities, like queer communities or feminist communities. You know, like a lot of the time people aren't protesting and aren't resisting because they're like really depressed or they just don't think it will work or they're like really struggling to pay their rent or pay for their health insurance or something. Right. And they're like, I don't even have the resource within myself that I need to be able to like really stand up and take action. But that's also a luxury because a lot of the people who are doing the most activist work are people of color or queer folks or indigenous people whose lives are threatened so they have no choice but to resist. I don't know all of this stuff is like everywhere we turn the knives are out but I feel like we need all the techniques and resources that we can muster in order to find a way to clear from our brains the insidious imperatives of this militaristic industrial growth culture that can make us blind to our own power. And so I really see them, our personal experience of what it is to be in this culture, like when we start to feel more empowered personally, then it's obvious that we need to rise up and resist vocally, verbally, physically, and like administratively go out and like pound the pavement and do that work. Thank you. 
You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at Emerson College in the heart of Hollywood. We've been speaking with Amanda Gates Garcia about her book, Initiated Memoir of a Witch. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation. We have Molly Lambert in the studio with us today. Molly's a writer. She's based in Los Angeles, and she recently wrote the introduction to a collection of Eve Babbitt's essays. The collection is called I Used to Be Charming, The Rest of Eve Babbitt's, and Molly is here to recommend a book for us. Molly, what book are you going to recommend? I want to recommend another New York Review of Books reprint. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's called The Expendable Man by Dorothy B. Hughes. And it is a thriller about a chase in Arizona. It's a wrong man thriller. Mm. Dorothy B. Hughes is another Los Angeles writer who Mm -hmm. I love and who has been back in print because of the New York Review of Books. She wrote this book, In a Lonely Place, that is the greatest noir book ever. And then she wrote a few other mystery thrillers. This is one of them. It has an intro or an outro, I think, actually, by Walter Mosley. Oh, cool. Another L.A. noir Yeah. Yeah. It's just, those are the people who I want repping L.A., people like Walter Mosley and Dorothy B. Hughes. How did you discover this book? I discovered it because of, I think, the New York Review of Books sent it to me. Mm. They were sending me some books ahead of uh, doing this intro for the Eve Babbitts Project. And... I just love them as an imprint because they really put out things that I'm like, ooh, I don't know what this is. I'm going to read it. And then I do. So they're in A Lonely Place by Dorothy B. Hughes. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to track down everything by her and started to. So they have reprinted a few of her books. And then there's a few others that are still out of print, but pretty easy to find as paperbacks. And I just, again, I was like, ooh, a female Raymond Chandler, what I always wanted. And it turns out it exists. Okay, will you tell us the title of the book again and the author? It's called The Expendable Man. It's by Dorothy B. Hughes. Dorothy B. Hughes. That sounds really great. Thank you so much, Molly. Thanks for having me. Okay, we've been speaking with Molly Lambert. She is a writer based in Los Angeles, and she did the introduction to the latest collection of Eve Babbitt's essays. Thanks, Molly. Thanks for having me. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Amanda Gates-Garcia, author of Initiated. When you went on Tucker Carlson, what was your decision to go on the show? How did you make that decision? And then what was the experience? I watched the interview and I thought you really did an amazing job sort of keeping your cool in a in an environment that doesn't lend itself to that. Yeah. And then also not sort of taking the bait of the sort of silly questions that he was asking you and really just talking about the things that you were genuinely there to talk about. But why did you agree to go? Hmm. It's a lion's den in some ways. Yeah, um, they asked me several times. I think they asked many witches who were doing political work several times to go on the show. I think um, it was... Because a lot of us were doing the spell to bind Donald Trump, Mm -hmm. and that was started by a magician, Michael M. Hughes, and I had done some 
of those out here. Like I teach a class called Magical Praxis and my students had been asking me to do that. And so I did it. And that had been months and months before. And, you know, I'd been doing political work for a really long time. Like I did a capitalism exorcism spell. I did a devouring patriarchy spell. So I already had some publicity around that. And then when they contacted me, I initially said no, because I was worried that I would get death threats, which I did mm-hmm. get. And I said to them, I don't want to go on the show because I'm worried that I will get death threats. And they're like, oh, we hate it when that happens. It usually stops after about a week. <laughs> <laughs> and, <Good. laughs> uh, and so I, but, you know, my spirits, what I call my spirits, you might call them, you know, my intuition, uh, my guides. We're like, you really have to do this. And I was mm-hmm. like, I do not want to do this. It's going to be be a fiasco. I'm going to get slaughtered. And I, you know, asked a lot of people who I'm friends with or who are in the media, uh, should I do this? And they were like, no, it's a mm-hmm. trap. Do not do that. Do not go on there. But so one night I was sleeping and my spirits just like were tugging on my clothes. Like, you need to do this. And so I woke up and I was like, oh, fine. All right. All right. All right. I'll do it. And I like sent the email and I was like, okay, I'll do this. This will be fine. And then I watched a bunch of episodes of him talking to people. And I noticed that when things really started to go downhill, like where he really started to go for blood was if they started to get upset or offended. Mm -hmm. And I made the commitment to myself that nothing he would say would upset me, that like he would not be able to knock me off the pillar of heart-centeredness no matter what he did. And so I also took a lesson from politicians because I knew that he would want to talk about, like every time I get interviewed by journalists of a certain kind, and I'm very grateful that this is not one of those experiences, I kind of get the same questions like, Do you do curses? Like, it's so funny. You don't have warts. Like, um, you know, like, why aren't you green? Like, all the time. Like, <laughs> why aren't you green? <laughs> Come on. Like, I thought witches. And, and I'm just like, yeah, witches are a thing. I think we're beyond that now. Like, we've talked about it enough. We can all just accept. But I knew that he, that was probably the direction he was going to go. And mm. the thing is, like, I really see witchcraft as something that is, you know, it is a practice that is an act of resistance because. I really see that unless we see nature and the planet as inspirited, as enchanted, we will keep destroying it. Like we only, only things that are sacred to us can't be destroyed. And witchcraft is a process of re-enchanting the world and making it sacred again and making our relationships with each other sacred again. And so I really believe in that passionately. And I really wanted to speak to that, to like to get a chance to use my voice to to advocate for that. And so I decided that whatever he asked me, I was just going to say what I wanted to say. And I wasn't going to answer that question. I wasn't going to go there with him. Mm -hmm. And so I had kind of a list of things that I wanted to talk about. But I have to say that it's really hard to go on that show. Like, let me tell you about this. (laughs) So you're in, you know, it looks like it's in this big news studio, but it's not. You're in like a little closet in Culver City. And there are two monitors in front of you, one with him on it and one with you on it. So you're looking at these two monitors and he's a little delayed and you have an earpiece in your ear that's speaking to you on a delay. So you're kind of hearing your voice come back to you, Mm -hmm. which if you've ever done that on your cell phone, 
you know, when you hear your voice repeated back to you, it's very disorienting. And then you go in there and they're like, okay, we expect a viewership of 3 million people tonight and then probably more like 20 million by the time this is done. All right, you're on. And then before I went in, the makeup artist, she was like, how are you feeling? And I was like, I'm a little nervous. And she was like, oh yeah, I totally don't blame you. Last night I had to leave the room because he was laying into that guy so much that like, I just couldn't watch. Oh my God. <laughs> and I was like, whoa. So I, you know, I did my rituals though before I went in. I did like a lot of grounding rituals. I had some sacred amulets with me. I like used my grounding oils. It's really good to use tree oils because obviously trees are like very rooted and just used all the things, the resources that I had. You know, I definitely if I were to do it again, I think I would I would do even better because at first when you get in there, the lights are so bright and it's so and it's just so intense of an experience. And also knowing that it's like a really hostile crowd, like, you know, yeah. they're not going to, you know, they might threaten my life. So, oh, right. so that was uh, really, I did feel very vulnerable. And there were things that I forgot to mention. Like I really wanted to talk about pr- police brutality and I wanted to say say more to advocate for the people who I feel like whose voices I really wanted to amplify. And, you know, I wish that I could go back and do that Mm -hmm. um, even more than I did. But I think considering the circumstances, I did okay. And you did amazing. And it it worked out really well for you, right? I mean, it did. It worked out far beyond what I could have ever imagined. Well, so I I have two questions that are not related. So ask the one first, but I also really want to get to the second one as well. So maybe I'll try to ask them together, which is one in the book, you talk a lot about signs mm. and um, and I think and it, signs are something that come up when you're young and you don't know exactly what your path is and you're trying to find it everywhere. Mm. And um, in your case, you ended up spending a lot of time in Europe and you had in your head that you should go to Amsterdam and then you met someone at a party and they told you to go to this specific school and you said, where is it? And they said, it's in Amsterdam. Yeah. And that was just confirmed like yeah. all these signs that had pointed you to go there. And like that kind of story to me is amazing because um, when I was younger, I struggled so much to know what to do and I would become fixated on certain signs, but then it's like they could kind of turn dark and maybe they were like, I, I was very afraid of following the wrong things, but it sounds like you still are very much in touch with signs. So I wondered, and and that must be a large aspect of magic. So I wondered if you could talk about either, you know, what, what, what you think about signs, how you cultivate kind of voices that can tell you what to do yeah yeah totally well so I mean I have a much better relationship with my spirit guardians now than I did at that time where yeah a lot of the time when I was younger um the signs that I would follow would lead me kind of into the lion's den like for instance I did get those signs to go to Amsterdam um which were really amazing they were far beyond like what felt like they could be coincidence and then when I got to Amsterdam I ended up having like the best of times and the worst of times. You know, there was a lot of hardship that I faced when I got there. And then it turned out that the reason that I even went there and what I felt like all the signs were pointing to, like spoiler alert, (laughs) if you read my book, didn't work out the way that I expected them to. But the thing was, you know, as someone who's a professional diviner, you know, a lot of the time people come in and they're like, well, I have this opportunity to move to New York and there's this job there or, you know, should I stay here? Or like my boyfriend really wants me to move to San Francisco. And when we ask that question, we have this idea that like this door leads to 
an eternity of happiness and this door leads to certain death and you can just figure that out. Like, like there's going to be a sign that tells you. And in fact, most of the time, both, most of the time, each door is going to lead you to both. And it really underscores our point of view philosophically that we have this idea that we can make the right decision or the wrong decision. For me, the signs that led me to Amsterdam were so vital because it got me out of a situation in San Francisco that was really dangerous for me, actually. And it led me on this whole big and beautiful adventure. But that doesn't mean there wasn't hardship in it. You know, it doesn't mean that, like, I lived happily ever after. It just was, like, the next step in the road you know it's like the next city on my long adventure you know on this road but it wasn't like the the final culmination so I mean also the thing is about signs is that often we're looking for signs when we're at our most vulnerable and so you know when when things are going great we don't really need signs we're not looking for them as much but signs can really show us what our heart really wants as well, because we're looking for specific signs to show us, you know, a specific direction. But also the quality of the sign really matters because a lot of the time, you know, we'll get a sign like, for instance, like what led me to to think that I should go to Amsterdam was that I had a dream where this magician throwing tarot cards was like riding through town on a fire truck and all of these people around me were saying where should I go what should I do and I was like well I don't know where you should go or what you should do I don't know what I should do I was 18 then 19 and then the magician with the tarot cards held up the sign that said Amsterdam 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 <laughs> I mean it's like pretty direct yeah. <laughs> he wasn't mincing his words and then, like, a few days later, I was at a party where, you know, I wanted to be a dancer. And I was like, where should I study? What should I do? Where should I go to school? And I met this dancer who just got back from Europe. And he, and I said, I really want to study dance. And he's like, you need to go for the school to the school for new dance development. And I was like, well, where is that? And he said, Amsterdam. And I was like, well, looks like I'm going to Amsterdam. <laughs> and um, so, but the thing was, you know, looking back and as I talk about in the book, you know, magicians are tricksters like the magician magicians are mercurial magicians are not someone that you should necessarily rely on or trust you know they like they might make life more interesting but they aren't necessarily like they're not your mom I mean it depends on what your relationship is with your mom but um but also you know he was on a fire truck I mean fire trucks follow fire it wasn't like he was <laughs> it wasn't like it this was like you know Jesus walking in through a field of flowers but even if it was Jesus I mean Jesus does meet a horrible end so I mean like all of these like symbols and, and myths and signs that we get you know, they have to be interpreted. And so I think that what was really happening with that dream was like, you will be going to Amsterdam and it will be exciting and your magic will increase, which it did. I had so much magical, so many magical experiences when I was there, but it won't be easy. It will be, you know, it'll be full of of fire and emergency, which it was. But yeah, so now I feel like I'm more able to interpret signs than at the time. I was just like, oh, there we go. But whatever is going on around the sign, like the nature of the sign is really important. Like, and we can't just discredit that or ignore that. Mm -hmm. 
that's an amazing answer. Okay. And my second question, um, it's just in my own curiosity because of your history in the arts and then also kind of this reserve that you seem to have and is required for the work you do in the world that really makes me think of like more like almost like what performance artists have to do, that mm. you have to set an intention and then just follow through on it in, in really difficult circumstances. I'm wondering if you draw any distinctions between like the work of artists and the work that you do, or if that, that kind of difference is not even interesting to you to pursue. Like, do you, is what you do a form of art as well? Or does I it love take this question out? Yeah. so much because it really gets to the heart of what I think my work is and what it's doing. And one of the things I'm really interested in, at least in the Western tradition, is, you know, like theater and healing literally developed in the same place. Like the temples of Asclepius were also the where the theater of Dionysus was, like in, you know, in Greece, like in classical Greece. Um, it's so interesting to me that like these two things came together like literally on the same land in the same place and then in many like indigenous traditions or shamanic traditions and I also include within those like the shamanic traditions of of ancient Europe where there wasn't a division between performance and healing or spiritual work you know they're all sort of folded together and then throughout like the history of specifically in the west you know and the enlightenment and the separation of spirit from matter essentially um we see that really the kind of last place aside i guess we could say that spirit did still exist within you know the traditions of judeo-christian like churches synagogues and things like that but it still seemed to me that there's like a, a transcendent form of spirituality there whereas i i see spirit as like in in matter or imminent and i feel like that like spirit was like that realm of enchantment really lived on in the arts. Like it was a place where the torch of enchantment was allowed to breathe and grow. And so I feel like, you know, when I came back to witchcraft, it was through my art practice. So I started leading public rituals as a performance artist, not as a witch. I, I was, I was, I was doing it in a sense like uh, to provoke aesthetic contemplation but that's not how people reacted to it people reacted to it like i was doing a religious ritual and it really made me start to question like well wh like what am i doing and i think it made me more rigorous as an artist but um but to me that was really interesting because people either really wanted me to be doing a spiritual ritual because they wanted it they were like i need someone to be doing this or they would kind of fold their arms and be like, this is so dumb. This isn't art, right? Or like, you know, like they, they would be like, I don't believe in this stuff. And I would be like, but we don't really say we don't believe in art. We might say, I don't think that you're doing this in a rigorous way as an artist. But but, but people couldn't see what I was doing as as art in a way. Like we had this idea about art as, as, some, as something for aesthetic contemplation or political contemplation. But so... Also, though, at the time, I was kind of struggling to make my living as an artist and working as an adjunct teacher, which really sucks in a profound way. You know, it's so grueling. It's so dehumanizing. Um, it's, it's, it's impossible to make a living wage. And yet people started asking me to do ceremonies for them privately. 
So I was seeing them as kind of like private performances um, that I was getting paid for much better than I was as an adjunct teacher. And I started to remember and reclaim the practices of my youth that my mother had taught me and started to, um, you know, do them more and more. And they started to transform me. They started to ask things of me, like the spirits started coming back to me and making claims on me and saying like, yes, this is it. And it, I'd really struggled for so long to try and make my interests all come together. You know, I was really interested in mythology and interested in performance and dance. And, you know, I have a master's degree in film and, and in writing as well. And I was like, I don't see how all of this fits together. And it wasn't until I started doing this work, which I feel like it is the work that I'm here to do is to like do my part to lay my brick in the road of reenchantment. Yeah, so I feel like they're not they're not separate and the more I do it the more I see that they're not separate, but I also feel it's like I'm I am and the other people who are working in my same field because there are a lot of art witches out there now are creating this remembering this re-embrace between the arts and magic and spirituality. So you call yourself the Oracle of LA. Mm-hmm. And how did you end up in Los Angeles? Well, so I grew up in Southern California, and I'm seventh-generation Californian. My family on both sides has been here since before it became a state. Um, but I, as as I was saying, you know, I did live abroad for a really long time. I lived in Amsterdam, and then I lived in London. Um, I lived abroad for about seven years. And funnily enough, I was looking for some signs about what I should do next, <laughs> And I ended up taking, I was, I was just like really lost in my life. And I ended up taking a walk down the South Bank and looking for a sign. And I went into South Bank in London, you know, Mm -hmm. on the Thames. And I went into, I think it was like the National Film Institute or something. And there was a pamphlet for CalArts. I'd really wanted to study both film and writing. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know where I could do that uh, kind of simultaneously. Um, as an artist, not just like as a film, like professional, a, not as like a sort of Hollywood filmmaker, mm-hmm. but more as like in the in the arts. And then I saw this pamphlet and was like, "You can study two things simultaneously." So then I applied, um, and I got in, and I came back, and um, you know. But since I've been here, I just feel like LA is such a fascinating place, and it's specifically fascinating from an oracular or mystical or mythological perspective because this is a place where the myths of the culture get made mm-hmm. you know with uh the film industry and everything but then it also has like the poetry of the you know being here on this edge of the continent and in this place that has attracted so many mystics and you know spiritualists and gurus and cults and all sorts of things But one of the things that I'm really interested in right now is, or that I've awakened enough Mm. to be interested in is, you know, I grew up in Southern California. I grew up on Chumash land. I'm now living on Tongvo land. And I I realized that, you know, because my family has been here for so long, I feel this sense of ownership over the land. And yet, you know, the real process and the true process of reenchantment is about intimacy and is about honoring and is about like historical legacy. And mm-hmm. I realized like, I don't know the names of the mountains or the trees in the native tongue of the people that lived here. I don't know any Chumash words or Tongva words. I 
don't know the word for the ocean in Tongva. I I don't know about the real history of this land. And so right now, you know, I'm really interested in, you know, one of the reasons why I think that um, specifically like white colonists have been so, so able to visit horror upon the land is because we don't have a connection to it. We don't know the names, you know, we don't have a sacred relationship to the land. And so I feel like now the work is really to start to very humbly and reverently approach the caretakers of this land and the ancestors of this land and to, um, to really learn and to, to sort of, be quiet and listen. Mm -hmm. And so that's really what I feel like, you know, Los Angeles is calling for me to do now. And and beyond that, like this land, California, whatever it is, like I'm sort of waking up and realizing that I, I, I haven't known it. Like I thought I have, Mm. you know, it's, I, I've been sort of on the surface, um, dealing with my own, struggles and I just have recently really been recognizing the hubris of that and wanting to you know dive under and listen so that's That's, what's next that sounds great thank you Amanda we've been speaking with Amanda Yates Garcia her book is called initiated memoir of a witch and she is a practicing witch an artist a performer and the oracle of Los Angeles so you can find me at oracleoflosangeles.com. You can tune into my podcast, Strange Magic. You can fo- follow me on Instagram at Oracle of LA or on Facebook at Oracle of LA. Great. All right. Thank you, Amanda. Thanks for having me on. It's been such a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 